Hello and welcome to the program. This is Luke Hunt for another podcast with The Diplomat and today with me is Nick Ray. Nick is, uh, like many of our guests, has an extraordinary history in uh, Indochina. He writes for Lonely Planet. He helped establish a a film company which has done a lot of work with Hollywood. Uh, Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I guess we should start with the start. Um, 25 years in Indochina. How did you how did you wind up here in the first place? Yeah, good question. So I, I studied uh, history and politics at university, which gave me a real taste for the you know the kind of uh, quirkier destinations around the world, and particularly all the, the sort of crazy happenings during the Cold War. Um, going back further, Cambodia was in my my mindset from a young age because obviously when the famine happened in 1979, we had a a huge television appeal on a children's program called Blue Peter, and I was kind of helping sell some of my toys to raise money for what was then called Campuchia. <laughs> so Cambodia was in my head from a young age. The other way was I got given a set of encyclopedias by my granddad, and you know, eight, nine years old, encyclopedias I'm afraid are pretty sure. boring. Um, and so I, I paid lip service to them, and I only got as far as A, and that took me to Angkor and Angel Falls. Uh, <laughs> I obviously got waylaid at Angkor, because I've never been to the Angel Falls. Maybe one day, I'm sure you'll get there. With, uh, you started with Lonely Planet, well, you started as a tour guide, and that led you into uh, more travel writing. You wanted to be a journalist, and you've seen a lot of exotic destinations, or you've seen a lot of destinations that were exotic once, and uh, we've seen uh, the trashing of them over the years. The last 20, 25 years, how do you see it? Has it been good, bad, indifferent? What have been the uh, the tragedies, and, uh, and where is there hope, particularly in the current climate of... Uh, Cambodia and yeah. beyond. I mean, that's interesting because the kind of destinations I've done were considered very edgy at one time. So when I started, I was, you know, I started with Lonely Planet in 1998 and Cambodia was my first gig for Southeast Asia on a shoestring. And then right. on the back of that, I went on to do the full Cambodia guidebook. But the first countries I did, Cambodia obviously was very much post-conflict still then, you know, it was only five years after the UN mission. Right. Pol Pot was, like, Pol Pot literally yeah. passed away while I was in country doing that first and gig. We're still fighting. Yeah, still fighting. the end of uh, 1998. That's it, Ang Long Veng, all those things were happening. And, you know, probably bumping into you in the Foreign Correspondence Club as a wide-eyed young journalist. But I also then went on to do places in Africa with a with quite a similar story. So I did Uganda, you know, Idi Amin, the, right. what happened there, and also very much post-conflict, still had the Lord's Resistance Army running around in the north. So I, s- I suppose for me, covering those kind of destinations, it, w- it was an optimistic time because things were getting better. Right. Um, so in the sense that, you know, civil wars were coming to an end, there was opportunity for tourism, for investment, for change. Right. So, I mean, for me, you know, Cambodia, obviously, there's there's always a question of two steps forward, one step back and so on. But I do feel overall there's been huge progress in many ways over the years. You know, if we think about what it was like then, you know, with sort of potholes the size of golf bunkers in the street, you know, yep. um, no no street lighting, you know, things were put on pen was was basically a, a very small, scruffy town. And now you're looking at a, a pretty cosmopolitan international city. Not all of it good, but it has changed a lot. And I think overall, you know, people in tourism tend to be quite cynical and, you know, you should have been there in the old days. I don't really buy into that because, for example, Siem Rep in the old days was pretty boring. Right. And now it's a, a world-class destination. You know, you don't just go to Siem Rep for Angkor. You go to Siem Rep for Siem Rep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, the changes have been remarkable and it's certainly not all bad. What, what are your choice destinations today where 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 would you where would you go not just in cambodia because you write guidebooks for uh, vietnam laos indonesia right across southeast asia what are the choice destinations that are emerging 
2021 going yeah. forward? That's a great question. I mean, starting in Cambodia, I'd say, <clears throat> obviously, you know, Cambodia is emerging as a standalone destination. For years, it was kind of tacked on to Vietnam or Thailand, and particularly for organized tours or, or tour groups, you know, they tended to just fly in to see Angkor. Backpackers, on the other hand, have been coming and exploring extensively for, you know, 10, 20 years. I think that there's kind of standout places, places that are already known are, are really growing in popularity. So Kampot's a great example where from being quite a sleepy backwater that just mm. a few travellers went to, now it's becoming the destination. You know, you've right. got sort of water sports on the river like stand-up paddleboarding, kayaking, you've got an emerging food scene obviously framed around pepper and you've got you know nice boutique hotels opening guest houses and so on so i think campot's doing well and um, the other place that's great obviously in the northeast mondalkiri mm-hmm. you know is a nature-based destination you've got elephant valley project which is a real flagship sort of uh, walking with the herd experience you've got gibbons and, and langers and other primates in the forest that you can spot um, and then of course down in the other end of the country the cardamoms you know right. which they're just about to have this huge project rolled out by the Ministry of Environment and the World Bank, like $50 million plus grant, um, much of which, uh, part of which will go to ecotourism, and that's for the cardamoms and the Tonle Sap protected area. So I think, you know, that, that Cambodia still does have great potential. There have been some missteps, as we know, yeah. but I think they're, they're not, you know, Sihanoukville being the most obvious example, but... Uh, some of them are not such big missteps that they can't be retraced or corrected. So I think right. there's still potential. Um, going beyond Cambodia, I mean, places that I think have got big potential. Um, you mentioned Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, countries I cover. Um, you know, Vietnam, I think um, some of the smaller islands are beginning to open up because, of course, the mainland beach destinations are very developed now. You're kind of Nha Trangs, your Muy Nays and so on. But they've got a whole load of little islands. I mean, right. obviously, Phu Quoc, known to Cambodians yes. as Cottrell, that, that's very developed. That's gone Hollywood style with huge, you know, huge mm-hmm. resorts and casinos, Vinpearl Safari Land, the world's longest overseas cable car. However, between Phukok and the mainland and also around that area, there's mm-hmm. lots of little islands. So you've got places um, like the Pirate Islands, a cluster of little islands quite near to Kep and Kampot. Um, and you've, th- th- these sort of places are very Vietnamese. They're not touristy. They've got lovely little right. beaches, little shacks on them. You can get a local boat across there and you won't, you'll barely see a backpacker. So I was out on a couple of those islands um, in December mm-hmm. for the new Mekong Delta Vietnam update. And, you know, again, they're, they're, they're not necessarily world-class destinations, but if you're an interested and inquisitive traveller that wants to see what Southeast Asia was like before tourism hit, right. then these kind of places are really, really interesting. There's one further outlying one called Nam Yu, mm-hmm. and that's a little archipelago of 10 islands, about three hours off the coast of Rakya. And this is just fascinating. You know, you go to these little islands and there's there's barely a guest house in sight. That's the way things were. That's what it was like. You know, this is like when you were first coming to the region, sure. say 20, 30 years ago. This is, And this, you don't see that very often anymore. So it's nice to find pockets of this in places. And I would almost encourage backpackers to get out there and see this. They may not find it as fun, as much fun as Phukok or Nha Trang or wherever, but they're seeing a real dose of old school Southeast Asia. Right. Now, because of your knowledge with the region, your work in the tourism industry, but your work, your work as a journalist, you've moved into, uh, into Hollywood films pretty much right off the bat with uh, Tomb Raider, which of course starred Angelina Jolie. How did that come about and where has that progressed to? Yeah, that's a great question. So I had, I had no film background, no film experience, you know, studied uh, you know, history and politics and then wanted to be in journalism, but had no idea about ever being involved in television or film. Right. So it, it kind of came about sort of by accident and design, as these things usually are a mix of both. I actually contacted 
Lonely Planet. Um, I was working for them already doing the guidebooks, but they had a, a television spin-off which was being made by an uh, Australian company, Ian Cross Pilot Productions in London. And he basically had been given the franchise for 10 years to do a Lonely Planet television. And after, the, after doing the Cambodia update in late 98, early 99, and the end of the Civil War, peace finally coming, and this new A lot of rewriting. Yeah, a lot of rewriting, a lot of expansion of destinations. Yep. There was suddenly an opportunity, and I, I basically contacted Pilot Productions as the Lonely Planet writer and said, look, guys, there's a window here. Cambodia is just opening up. If you don't do it now, somebody else will do it. You know, you need yep. Cambodia to be in the next series. And so they ended up putting Cambodia in the series, and I ended up working as the fixer on it together with my now wife, Kulika. And so, so we worked as kind of co-fixers and, and accompanied them around the country for four weeks. From that, we suddenly went in at the deep end to Tomb Raider. So we got contacted initially by Oliver Stone's people, because Oliver Stone was going to make a film called Beyond Borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, and it ended up being made later by another director, um, starring Angelina Jolie, ironically, but at the time it was going to be Meg Ryan as the lead actress. And Oliver Stone wanted to make it very guerrilla, you know, small crew, right. real locations. So don't shoot Cambodia and Thailand like they later did, yep. shoot it in Cambodia. However, for various reasons, that unraveled, but not before we'd done two weeks scouting. So we scouted all around, getting ready for the arrival of Oliver, the legend. Yep. While we were up in Siem Reap, the unit manager I was with, Sam Breckman, he got a call uh, saying, you know, from the Tomb Raider crew saying, oh, we hear you're the man for Cambodia. And Sam, never want to miss an opportunity. Yeah, that's it. I'm in Cambodia now. Oh, we want to come and uh, scout Siem Reap. I'm in Siem Reap now. Oh, we're looking at staying at the Raffles. I'm in the Raffles lobby now. So it was really serendipitous. And basically, within a week of Oliver Stone winding down and that project falling off the radar, Tomb Raider stepped in. And basically, they came out and scouted for about four or five days. But it was was quite a short-term fix because they had originally had a completely different storyline with the terracotta army waking up. And uh, But that had been done in another film, like a Chinese or Japanese film, and they don't want to copy or repeat so Cambodia it was and then suddenly from you know from nothing we were suddenly engaged in trying to bring the first major Hollywood production to Cambodia in the post-war era mm-hmm. and that was a real maze dare I say minefield maybe the wrong wrong phrase for Cambodia but it was very difficult because there was no precedent and so we had to work out you know do we work with Funsin Peck or the CPP do we go the royal right, route or the, the political route the different political factions exactly. who were tearing the country apart at the time that was it and we had to navigate a way for us politics aside we needed to help Hollywood get this film made right. so we had to find the right route to, to APSA authority the right route to the Minister of Culture and in the end it was it was so sensitive at that time because literally Cambodia was as you say it was mm-hmm. tearing itself apart with politics in some ways that it went right up to the Deputy Prime Minister then Sokan, and mm-hmm. also the Council of Ministers. So the Council of Ministers had to vote on whether Tomb Raider would be allowed to right. go ahead or not. And of course, the only person they would have been able to identify with in terms of this movie was Angelina Jolie, which um, obviously made things probably a bit easier. Definitely. I, I mean, she was becoming quite famous by then. She'd already won the Oscar for Girl Interrupted, mm-hmm. and she, you know, she that was the beginning of her rising stardom. And I think, in a way, Tomb Raider was what sealed it. Sure. And I think, yeah, for the gov, that would have been it. She was already becoming a bit of a sort of pin-up face of Hollywood. Um, and it was very interesting because, of course, also it took her on a, on a massive life journey. You know, her life changed because right. of coming to Cambodia. You know, she adopted, adopted Maddox. Yeah. That was massive. And she became a UNHCR ambassador, UNICEF ambassador. You know, so I think in terms of when she came to Cambodia, she was very much kind of still a post-teen rebel. Right. And, you know, lots of problems. You know, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, we all, we all, we, we've all had our moments. Everyone has their moments. But she was a really, you know, a very interesting person and very engaged. 
and desperately keen to learn about Cambodia. And I think it did, you know, in a literal sense, it opened her eyes to mm. another world beyond Hollywood and beyond Europe. And I think you've seen the commitment, personal commitment, both in time, money, and everything else that she's put into her causes since then. So you can definitely say, you know, Cambodia changed her life. Sure. I mean, uh, many years ago, we were up at the villages uh, around Sam Lot, desperately poor and totally isolated. But uh, her and uh, uh, Billy Bob uh, were up there uh, building uh, building shack hats, uh, shacks, building, uh, putting in water irrigation, all these kinds of things, and uh, they really did make a, an enormous difference. Uh, getting back to Nick Ray, what, what was your favourite memory from that movie? From Tomb Raider, yeah, it was well, it was really interesting. I mean, a couple, there were lots of stories, you know, behind the scenes. You, know, you only see what you see, what the Hollywood right. wants you to see in the final shots, and it's very carefully edited. But yeah, a couple of things spring to mind that were quite funny. One of them was the East Gate is a big scene. You know, they, we basically filled it in with a giant Apsara, and in mm -hmm. the film, the bad guys, led by Ian Glenn, who became famous, of course, in uh, Game of Thrones, and also Daniel Craig, who right. went on to become James Bond. He was her kind of bad boy lover, semi-lover in the film. Yeah. They're trying to break in through the East gate to the temple and so we've got all these ropes and things and we're using local extras from the villages because we right. want to support them the, the funny thing was that the cambodian jungle is not jungly enough for hollywood right. it never is so yeah. first thing they do when they get to siem Reap is they go to a garden center and buy thousands of dollars worth of plants and dress it with fan palms and you know jasmine yeah. and so when you when you look back you can see yeah how you, that's dressed when you start looking with those sort of eyes but of course that was november so it's mm -hmm. the dry season you've got to water these plants right so we had the only way to water them at that time there were no water trucks in Siem Reap so it was the fire fire brigade so we had to make a deal with the fire brigade to basically travel out there every day and water them in the morning and the afternoon so and this was when Siem Reap only had I think two working fire engines so we were kind of occupying half their firefighting fleet so we the first day we drove out there I was on a motorbike to show them the location and they, they treated it like a real fire because I guess they didn't get that many call outs so they had sirens blazing horn everything yeah. and they went you know careering through the south gate oh my you know don't smash into ankle yeah, toys <laughs> that would be really bad and then Angkor, I don't know if you remember, but Angkor Thom was obviously in its heyday, it was a sort of canal-based city, lots of waterways running through it. So those roads are actually causeways, they're, they're elevated mm -hmm. and either side is quite low. So the fire engines going down towards the east gate, our art truck is coming out and it's very narrow, there's only room really for one to pass slowly. Art truck does the right thing, pulls over, waits for the fire engine. Yep. I go past and wait. The fire engine just keeps going full tilt and Ooh. just at the last minute as they get near the truck, they swerve but not really realising it's a causeway, they swerve off the causeway nice. and the fire engine rolls into the forest. So, you know, day one of watering the plants and uh, one of the two fire engines in Siem Reap is lying on its back in the jungle. So we, it takes us about seven hours to get it out because, of course, it's our fault. Right. We booked them. So they, well, they you were there. Us. We were there. Don't blame us. We then had to use a Apsara Authority crane, Ankle Conservation. Yep. They had a big 10-ton crane mm -hmm. and a truck grab. And, it, yeah, it took until about 1 a.m. to get that damn thing out of the, uh, the jungle. But... To their credit, they were then very careful every subsequent day when they went to water the plants. Um, and from from there, you established Hanneman Films, and right. you've done a couple of big ticket documentaries, movies, shorts. Um, Mekong 2030, right, I think, yeah. is the latest one on the future of the Mekong River, which is looking particularly grim at the moment. Very bleak. Right? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. How how is that? Do you see yourself as a kind of Hollywood-style 
company or are you more leaning towards uh, saving the planet, which a lot of people would like to see? That's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that in terms of the origins, we were, we were born out of Hollywood by right. accident. So actually, the, the origin story in brief was that Tomb Raider, Paramount Productions, who made Tomb Raider, they actually sort of paid to set us up as, as Hammond mm. Films in to protect themselves basically right. because obviously Angkor was a big ticket location and they didn't want to be the ones responsible if something went wrong right. and what we didn't realise until later because we were quite naive back then with no experience was that they'd had huge problems on the beach and that was oh, okay. so the beach where they'd moved tree, palm trees around and things and Koh mm. Phi in that, in that area right. and this I, is the movie The Beach obviously the movie The Beach yeah. with Leonardo DiCaprio which right. was made about a year or two before but Paramount had taken a lot of heat by from Thai environmental activists for messing with the natural environment mm-hmm. and so based on that they were like well we don't want that to happen at Angkor so let's find sure. some people that we can put in the way yeah. um, luckily for us it went really well and you know we had press conferences at the end and APSAR authority signed it off as no problems really well done because it was very collaborative I almost felt I worked half for APSAR authority and half for the production because I really you know I cared so much about Angkor that I had to be there like looking after the apps with the APSARA team making yeah. sure it all went well and I don't think people realize too that uh, in those days you could simply just walk in yeah you know I know people who are riding their motorbikes not around Angkor Wat but over through it, Angkor, and over through it. it. <laughs> yeah uh, you know it was quite it was it was open fields territory and um, it really required the people in those days to do the right thing not everybody did but most most people did yeah, yeah. self-censorship responsibility exactly. and so on that's it yeah. so so Hollywood sort of helped create us as a production entity and Hanuman films came from that but then yes as you say in subsequent years we've we kind of for the first decade, so till about say 2010 or even a little beyond, mm-hmm. we, we were still mainly what you call a servicing company. So we looked after you know, BBC, Nat Geo, Discovery, any productions that came to Cambodia, we were often involved. So you know, Gordon Ramsay, uh, right. you know, Gordon's Great Escapes, uh, Charlie Borman, by mm-hmm. any means, um, Top Gear Vietnam, mm-hmm. so we, you know, the famous Top Gear show when they converted their motorbikes right. into amphibious and probably the only people that will ever travel Halong Bay by motorbike, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So that was a good experience. But then we sort of began to switch direction I suppose from around 2012-13 when we started getting involved in co-productions so we did this uh, Ruin which won the Special Horizonte Prize in Venice at the film festival which was a real art house independent feature made with an Australian uh, production partner and then on the back of that that gave us confidence to sort of think well hang on you know we, let's let's explore more about filmmaking rather than just right. film servicing and then I suppose the big significant break or change was with The Last Reel so that mm-hmm. was um, directed by Kulika your uh, wife my wife, Kulika Soto, my wife, she directed it. I was one of the producers and did the locations and things. And that obviously had its uh, premiere in Tokyo International Film Festival mm-hmm. and won the, um, basically the Spirit of Asia Award, which was amazing. Cause you know, we were at the, the big uh, theater in Rapongi Hills, the biggest cinema in Tokyo, sort of thousand capacity. The first award was a lifetime achievement, a lifetime achievement award, which went to Tim Burton. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> and the second award was nice. the Spirit of Asia. Award. Nice company. <laughs> and then it's like Kulika Soto, and you know she completely freaked out. But you know she had a, an inkling it might be because they'd asked her to stick around to the ceremony, right. and you know it's like, well, we've got to go home. No, you're not going home. So you kind of get a feeling, but they hadn't out and out told us. So that was a game changer in the sense that that film, you know, it had a five week release in Cambodia became one of the most successful or popular Cambodian films at the cinema because they right. often don't last long and then it had a, a general release in Japan and was shown at, um, in Tokyo for a month and then went touring around the country right. so and that that sort of began as you say that journey of, of filmmaking and now we've begun also to do look at things like documentaries so the Mekong 2030 is very much short form it's it's also still um, 
fictional, mm-hmm. um, but based on realities, as you say, that are happening around us. So it's envisioning what the future of the Mekong might be. And obviously, as you mentioned, can be could be quite disastrous if things continue as they are. And so in the case of Kulika's short film, it's about um, a lowland Khmer and uh, a an highland uh, Krum mm-hmm. up in Ratnakiri. And the Krum minority person finds a, a buried statue, which obviously has a lot of value, right. but he doesn't realize quite how valuable. And so it's the interplay between the minorities and the lowland Khmer and the exploitation that can and does go on. And also the, the journey of how they change and this statue and the opportunity it presents in terms of money and greed changes them as they go. And of course, without spoiling the ending, the irony is that in the end, neither of them benefits. Right. It's... Uh... It, yeah, the, the analogies with the Mekong River are quite stunning at the moment. Never have I seen, uh, the, well, never have I seen the river at the current the current level where it's so low and it's so still so the wet season, the rainy season is still so far out. But it, just simply as a story, it's really capturing the imagination. It's uh, the people of Indochina are obviously divided by um, sovereign borders, politics. But when you have 70 million people living right there, and despite what all the politicians are saying mm-hmm. and all the people who might regard climate change as nonsense you just watch the wa- you just watch the water go down yeah and the fish catchers are nil plummeting and, yeah and so what are people telling these people what yeah. it's, it's it's quite extraordinary to see that no, unfold that's, that's a really good point because um you know it's one of the most one of the longest rivers in the world one of the most important in asia and certainly the most important in southeast asia right and yet as you say it's sort of evaporating in front of us and the countries that stand to lose the most are cambodia and vietnam as the downstream countries mm-hmm. and you know what i really worry for cambodia because the tonle sap is like the the heart, you know, the heartbeat of the country, the pulse, That's right. because it, it, you know, up and down every year, the river changing direction, and you know, if, if the river significantly drops on a permanent basis, that's potentially the end of, of the lake, the I death re- of the lake. I remember, um, I think it was 2000. Was there've been a couple of big floods since then, but 2000 was a record flood, and uh, taking the boat from Sam Reap to Phnom Penh, and there's this, there's this place in the middle of the river where you stood on the boat. And you turn around full 360. The entire horizon was water. all water. Yeah. Not a tree in so sight. Huge. Yeah, it yeah. was just absolutely enormous. And it's quite disheartening to see where it's going now. No, definitely. I mean, that's it. You talk, when part of this project was obviously talking to quite a lot of Mekong 2030 was filmed in and around Prek Toll, you know, mm-hmm. the, where there's the famous bird sanctuary, but it's also right. a floating village between Siem Reap and Banambong. And so really tricky filming, like filming at night with mud, you know, muddy river banks mm-hmm. and floating houses, because, you know, the idea being that they'd, the, 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 the unpredictability of the river meant they'd had to put their houses onto water. And it was, it, but really tricky shoot, but obviously dealing with real villagers living on the river on the on the lake and on the river and right. yeah list, learning about their challenges and particularly like you said the fish count the fish stocks dropping the the snake harvest which is very famous mm-hmm. that happened every year beginning to drop you know so really given how many people rely on the the protein from the fish and the stocks of the lake you know it could it could be disastrous if it's not you know if it's not challenged indeed um where do you see Hanneman films going next you know and we're living in a completely different environment politically uh, as opposed to 20 years ago. Uh, the freedom of movement, the access to people, the ability to simply, like we we're talking, as we we're talking about um, Sam Reap, you know, the ability to just walk in. Those days are long gone. How do you see uh, Hanneman Films unfolding 
over the next few years? What, yeah. have, what else have you got tucked up your sleeve? I think definitely there'll be more of our own projects because mm. we've now got the confidence and the connections and you know the, the reputation, if you like, to, mm. to, to bring in support, co-production, funding, etc. There's a lot more opportunity now with things like Netflix and you know other Amazon and all these other platforms where they're desperate for content and they want local or regional content, right. you know, for a Cambodian audience or for a Indonesian audience or for a Thai audience. So the ability, the the, the opportunities for storytelling are growing all the time and. The, mm-hmm. and the potential audience so I think that I mean sort of on a personal level I'd, I'd like to obviously get in, involved in making some more things um, possibly documentaries more my format and interest you know right. with a background as a, as a journalist or travel sure. writer also working on things on the travel side you know for example from you know um, promotional films for tourism boards and that mm-hmm. kind of thing sounds a bit saccharine but it's, it's very much my Pays experience and knowledge yeah exactly so for me I think yeah doc- the, the one documentary project that's really been in my head for a long time and I really need to focus on it and I've done the treatments and I've done all the, I've yeah. done the preparatory work but you know you've got to get serious at some point is uh, the Vieng Sai Caves up in northeast Laos you know where the Pankhe okay. Lao were based from 1964 to 73 because to me it's like the Coochie Tunnels cast in stone and the fact right. that 20,000 people Coochie lived tunnels, underground the Coochie Tunnels being the uh, tunnel network that the Viet Cong constructed during the war uh, in Vietnam uh, this is interesting tell us a bit more yeah, so the, the caves are fascinating for me because, you know, they're, they're so well preserved, which is quite rare for, for revolutionary bases. That just doesn't happen. And so you had this pristine network where 20,000 people lived literally underground. You know, the entire Lao, Pathet Lao communist leadership. Mm-hmm. It, it was the de facto communist capital of Lao for nine years. So, you know, literally there were hospital caves, there were propaganda caves, you know, the East... German Philharmonic Orchestra came down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and played there. Cuban salsa dancers came through there. I mean, this uh, imagine if you could go back in time and see this, which we can't, but the best we can do is to try and interview survivors while they're still alive. Right. I, mean, I had a similar experience when uh, we were researching the uh, Punji Trap, the book mm-hmm. that came out a couple yeah. of years ago. And it it's extraordinary the people that were lined up who were willing to talk to me over the years. And then one by one, they do peel off. They, they they pass on, and you kind of realise that if you don't if you don't go and do it, nobody else will. Yeah. And it's lost. No, it's so important to sort of chronicle this or capture it while they're still alive because that, you know, first-hand observers, survivors, you know, it's amazing. I mean, the good example in Cambodia, you know, we do a lot of documentaries related to the Khmer Rouge, so mm-hmm. we've we've interviewed victims of the atrocities and the bombing and the, and the genocide, but also perpetrators. And it's amazing how much they are willing to open up, particularly on the yeah, perpetrator indeed. side as well. Yeah. But it's, you know, going back to bombing, connecting with Lao, what, what's amazing is that, you know, people often just think of the, the body count, you know, right. random figures like perhaps 250,000 Cambodians were killed by US bombing, which is horrendous in itself, you know, but they forget about the survivors and the people that were near, in the proximity of the bombs. You know, we've talked to people who had perforated and bleeding eardrums, mm-hmm. we've had talked to people who lost control of their bowels and you know if you're the village chief and that happens in front of your village then you know you're never the same again indeed and it's not like uh to be polite it's not like these people in the villages were were, were worldly i mean most of them never went to school their life their lives for a millennial were the same they just go out and they fish they grow rice the, it's a very simple life and then all of a sudden you wouldn't see it coming yeah. you know that yeah. You, you, you don't. You, you wouldn't hear it coming. You, yeah. You, and then all of a sudden, your body is shattered. Yeah. And people are it. dead in front and of you. And your family. You've got your brother, your mother, your cousins. People dying yeah. around you with with no, 
you know, no obvious reason. You, you don't understand the politics, the context. What's the Cold War? You don't even know what's happening in Phnom Penh, let alone what's Indeed, happening yeah. internationally. And that's the thing. You know, I don't think from talking to survivors, no one that's been anywhere within the proximity of a B-52 strike will ever forget that. They're scarred for life. There's certainly a memorable sound. I remember a few rumbling overhead and seeing what they did and hearing and feeling what they did in Iraq. And uh, it's uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah, well, that, that's what I mean, without getting too political, that's what frustrates me so much today when I realise that the US, the UK and the so-called Western Alliance, right. they still use as their default option in conflicts like Syria, Iraq, where, Yemen, wherever it may be, bombing is the default option. And every time those bombs are misplaced or mistargeted, that's another generation of enemies created. Indeed, and uh, even as we speak now, we're hearing reports out of Washington that uh, Donald Trump is looking at reversing the ban on landmines. I mean, it's... That's disgraceful, yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, that was such a, a signature thing to get the US on board. I mean, I know the mm. Soviet Union or Russia now and China, some countries didn't come on board, but the US should, in principle, be the, the figurehead, you know, the moral Indeed. beacon to follow. Yeah. And reversing that, you know, even even military experts have said, you know, it's not... They're not needed. Idea. They're not needed. I mean, because the problem with a landmine, as we know from our long experience in Cambodia, is it's not just a weapon of war, it's a it's a weapon against peace. You know, it, it lingers Indeed. long after the last casualties. Right. It continues creating casualties for generations. That's right. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary... Oh. Yeah. Nick, given your history in the region, uh, and you've already given us a list of places to go to, uh, where would you personally go for a holiday if you're taking the wife out for a special treat? If I was going for a holiday, um, that's a good good point. I would I, Within Cambodia, I think it's hard to beat the islands, you know, Koh Rong yeah. or Koh Rong Samlon, if you just really want to chill and yeah. have some real downtime, whether whether you're a lazy beach person or a Royal Sands person or a Koh Toy, you know, yeah. backpacker area. But the be those beaches on those islands, while they remain relatively undeveloped, are absolute gold. And within the region, I'm a I'm big fan of as you've heard from our conversation, a big fan of Laos, and I really love uh, Luang Prabang, you know, the old royal capital. Mm -hmm. That's just got such a mellow vibe and just beautiful atmosphere to the place. Um, and I think if you really want to explore and, and be adventurous and sort of push the boundaries as perhaps we did back in the 90s in places like Cambodia, the place to do that now is Myanmar. And Nick Ray, on that note, thank you very much. Thank you.